Welcome to Bethel Cleveland's Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information on this podcast or how to get connected, go to BethelCleveland.com. All right, well, hey, I'm really excited to be with you again this week. We're gonna continue on with our series, Foundations of the Jesus Life. Did you guys do your homework last week? Who was in the Word last week? Oh, gosh, I was just... (laughs) Nobody responded for a second. Oh, scared me. That's okay. I'm kidding. It's going to be fun today. Um, For the foundations of the Jesus life, we're going to talk about worship today. Um, Worship, if it's your first time, yes, we do this every week like that. It's a long time sometimes. (laughs) But um, we just recognize the, uh, the power that takes place when the group of people comes before the Lord and takes him off the clock and just worships, that we're not hung up on our routines, not hung up on doing a certain formula or, or a certain order of fast, medium, slow songs, but that our sole focus is to connect with the heart of God. And the fruit that comes out of your life when you live with that forward devotion to him, the fruit that comes out of your life when you're submitted to his presence He's not in a box or on the clock with you. The fruit is a hundred times over in your life. We believe here that Bethel Cleveland, that God is always speaking, he's always moving, and that he wants to invade in your life and explode in your life with his presence, with his spirit, so that you can live the kind of life that Jesus died and was resurrected for you to have. All right, so hey, let's talk about worship today. Now, I have um, a bunch of studying that I did here uh, last year, but I love it. I kind of dug a little deeper, and I just wanted to give you a couple FYIs, a couple did you knows for worship. Hmm. So the interesting thing is, secular science is proposing that we are wired for God, that our brains have been designed to commune with God. That's pretty cool. So let me list off some things that you'll enjoy. So corporate worship has been shown to have health benefits. So not just spiritual. Your body is getting some good stuff this morning. Regular church attendance is associated with a 30 to 35% reduction in the likelihood of death and a reduction in the probability of a stroke. So guess what? Just by getting out of your bed this morning, you're less likely to die and less likely to have a stroke. That's good news, right? I mean, talk about just like baseline benefits. Thank you, Jesus. And then another amazing thing, it's been found that as people sing together in worship to God, like in a choir, uh, there's obvious beneficial effects of the heart, but they've done studies where they recognize that the heartbeats in in the choir while they worship synchronize with each other. So in other words, their hearts are beating as one. I think that's pretty amazing. So as we worship together next week, just start taking pulses next to each other and see if they're, if they're linking up. And if they're not, say, Lord, get them on board. Come on, sync up. Mm. Another interesting thing. Uh, a study by the University of Miami on the progress of AIDS, Dr. Gail Ironson, she said that in her patients that she observed that turning to God 
rather than rejecting God, appeared to boost the immune system of those with AIDS and stave off the disease nearly five times as effectively. Pretty amazing, right? Here's another one. People who regularly worship change. Praise God, right? That should be motivation to invite people in your life just right there. People change. We experience less stress and our blood pressure goes down. This is really going into the nerdy stuff that I like. Their prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that's associated with focus and attention, becomes more active over time. So it helps you to avoid distraction and be more intentional with your life, right? All right, they also have more activity, and now we're going really weird, in their anterior cingulate cortex. <laughs> Try to say that five times. That's the part of the brain that's associated with love, compassion, empathy. So focusing on God's love, whoa, science is finally catching up to scripture. It makes us more loving and less angry. Has anyone ever come to worship where you had a fight with somebody? Maybe your spouse. I would, I'm not saying that you did. But, you know, your kids are fighting in the back or you have an argument and you kind of bicker back and forth. And then you finally make it to worship. You're totally not in the mood to be there. And then the presence of God hits you. And because, you know, you're, you go to Bethel Cleveland, which means you're a pushover for the presence of God. He's just got to go, and then you just fall right over. So, of course, you respond when he comes in and you're like, ah. Oh you know, that was dumb. And you lean over quietly and go, I'm sorry I said that in the car on the way here. It's worship. It's making you less angry and making you more like Jesus. When you pray in tongues. Okay, so researchers at the University of PA, they took the brain images of five women while they spoke in tongues, okay? And they found that their frontal lobes, this is the thinking, like, willful part of the brain, like, it controls what we do. Um, they were quiet, and the language centers were too. But like the regions involved in like, you know, self-consciousness, like being awake and present, were active. So the women were not in blind trances, and it was unclear which region was driving the behavior. So their brains are Active And the part of your brains that, that kind of light up when you think or when you speak and when you talk, nothing was happening, but they were still present. So it was almost like the study revealed that they were communicating with their spirit. Your three parts. You have your body, your soul, which is your mind, will, and emotions, and your spirit. Now, worship activates that peace inside of you, that peace of eternity called a spirit, right? 1 Corinthians 14.2 says that when someone speaks in tongues, no one understands a word he says because he's not speaking to people, but to God. And he's speaking the intimate mysteries in the spirit, right? Romans 8.26. Now, in the same way that the spirit also helps our weakness, for we don't know what to pray at as we should, 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. How many of you have, have, have felt there was a time where you didn't know what to pray or how to talk to God about what you were going through, right? But the Spirit, it says in the word right here that he helps us in that weakness because when we don't know how to pray, he intercedes through us with groanings too deep for words. He makes sense of those noises and those sighs. And it says in verse 27, and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So if you don't know how to pray right, you don't know how to ask for the right things, when you pray in the spirit, he intercedes on your behalf according to to the core values of the father. That's pretty amazing. So if you get stressed at work, if you're upset about something in your life, just walk around and go, <laughs> Some of your people might work, might get a little, a little scared. Like, what are they saying? Because all they heard is, <laughs> But for the foundation of the Jesus life, worship is built into that foundation, right? It's one of the most important parts of it. So it's really important to kind of clarify what is worship? Because you'd be really surprised. A lot of us, we can get into our cultural rhythms of what we think it is and lose sight of what it really is. So what is worship? If I asked you that right now and I kind of went like talk show host with a handheld around the room and started saying, what is worship? I'd be like, what's worship? Um, singing. Um, hands raised. Um, I'm, I'm sure, I know. So, you know what? I, I'm speaking to the wrong room right here. If I, if I asked you what worship was, I'd walk up like to Paul. He'd be like, well, it's when the presence of God fills the room. <laughs> He'd give this big explanation. <laughs> but my point is that if you ask your general average Joe Schmo in the kingdom, not that there is an average, but you know, we'll say there is. Um, they're gonna respond by describing actions that are worshipful, right? So we talk about music being the language of the soul and the spirit, or dance. How many dancers in the room today? This one's for you. I wrote this description here. Dance being a a physical reflection of what our spirit does before the Lord in worship in supernatural places. Um, Art as a visual of what's happening in the unseen spiritual realms, or songs that break yokes and open prison doors, right? So there's an old song um, by Lewis Casebolt, he got it right. And I want you to sing it with me if you know it, because this is a worship sermon, so I'm allowed, it's legal to sing. But it goes, I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison doors. Yeah. Oh, I've got a river of life flowing. Now you got to take me home to the chorus. Spring up, oh well, within my soul. Yeah. Spring up, oh well, and make me whole. Spring up, oh well, and give to me. Just you. That life abundantly. You guys sound amazing. So next week, I'll put you guys all right up over here. If that's all right, you sound amazing. So worship is a river of life 
flowing out of us, right? The dancing, the singing, the shouting, they're all physical responses to this river of life that is flowing out of us. Now catch this. There is a river that flows from his throne. Ezekiel had a vision about it flowing from the temple. And it's one of my favorite verses because it says everything that the river touched in the vision came to life. John had a vision of a river flowing from the throne of God. So worship is a river flowing from our spirit that meets up with his river. And then it's water to water and spirit to spirit. This is Jay's definition of worship, okay? I'm trying to catch it all. So you can write it down, you can love it. And if you hate it, just, you know, give me a pass. Worship is the response of our spirit to pure and true spiritual communion with God. Worship is the response of our spirit to pure and true spiritual communion with God. Now, you don't need to sing it again, but how many only know that first verse of that song? Y'all know verse two and three? Because they exist. (laughs) I didn't. So many of these songs that are, that are kind of getting rebirthed right now, I really do believe that God's about to kind of start a worship renaissance or revival in worship. And all these old songs that keep popping up, they just have amazing verses that I just don't know if we didn't sing them or if I don't remember them, but that's unlikely because I memorize lyrics pretty well. Um, but the verse here, it says, I've got a river of life, not just flowing out of me. It says flowing within me. It started gushing up. Okay, they use the word gush. That's probably why we don't sing it. It started gushing up when he set me free. That I keep the flow as my only plea. I've got a river of life springing within me. And then the next verse, you just have to hear this because it's so good. Once I call his name, there's a flow within. It turns me from my day and makes him Lord again. And as my spirit burns, Satan cannot win. Because calling, oh Lord Jesus, keeps this flow within. And you see, Jesus understood the connection between worship and our spirit. Open your Bibles to John 4, or open your app to John 4. This past conference uh, with Pastor Benny Hen was my first one using my phone as a Bible, and I totally get the appeal. You can get to those references so fast. Like Bible sword drills would be really different with this generation. But we open in John 4, and Jesus has arrived at a Samaritan village, and it's near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph, and it says that in verse 6 through 8, wearied by his long journey, he sat down on the edge of Jacob's well and sent his disciples to, to the village to buy food, for it was already afternoon. Now here's the deal. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, Now she's flustered, okay? Because let's be, if you know the story, she's coming to the well at the middle of the day to avoid the judgment of the other women because of her um, lifestyle of loose living and lots of husbands and men. So she's already going there because she's going to the most miserable part of the day to avoid seeing other people. It is like people who go to the gym at 12 a.m. and 1 a.m. because they don't want to see anybody else. <laughs> there, is a, there is an intentionality behind it. So she shows up and 
Not only is there somebody there, but it is a Jew who don't, and the Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. There's a, a, a disconnect there. So when she goes to get water, she's already shocked that Jesus is there. And then he asks her to give him a drink, breaking every social norm that she has come to expect. And she's in surprise because we tend to sanitize these people when we read the scriptures, when we read it in our head, especially old translations, we take out the humanity part of it, right? And it just feels like they say, well, why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? But she's kind of shocked. She's like, why would a Jewish man ask me for a drink of water? And he responds saying, if you knew who I am and the gift that God wants to give you, you'd ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. Now, keep in mind at this point, if you've watched The Chosen of this episode, anybody has seen this one? Oh my gosh, did you not stop crying at that? It's, I'm gonna get emotional thinking about it. But at this point, she sighs and she goes, but sir, you don't even have a bucket. And the well is deep, so where do you find this living water? Do you really think that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well and drank from it himself? And Jesus answered, if you drink from Jacob's well, you'll be thirsty again. But anyone who drinks the living water, I give them. They will never be thirsty again. Now remember the song. This is what I was thinking about when I heard the scripture. For when you drink the water I give you, it becomes a gushing fountain of the Holy Spirit flooding you with endless life. And she responds, well, okay, let me drink this water so I won't be thirsty and I won't have to come back here ever again. And Jesus kind of responds with the word of knowledge. He says, go get your husband, bring him here. I'm, I'm not married. That's true. You've been married five times. And the man you're living with is not your husband. You've told the truth. So then she kind of shifts her posture here. And she's saying, okay, I guess you're a prophet. Okay, well, answer this theological question. She's going to the heart of the root of the division between Samaritans and Jews. She says, you know, why do our fathers worship God on this nearby mountain? But you Jews, you teach that Jerusalem is the only place where real worship can happen. So who is right? If you are here as a prophet telling me all the secrets of my life, then explain to me where is worship's really supposed to happen? And Jesus responds, he says that the time has come when you will worship the Father neither on a mountain nor in Jerusalem, but in your heart. You people don't really, your people don't know the one they worship, but we Jews worship out of our experience for it's from the Jews that salvation is available. And so from now on, worshiping the Father will not be a matter of the right place, but with a right heart. For God is spirit. And he longs to have sincere worshipers who adore him in the realm of spirit and truth. All of my other favorite translations, NASB, NKJV, all that, they say, because these are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Spirit and the truth. And you know, somewhere along the way, we define worship as a portion of service at church. Somehow, it's become generally known by the expressions of worship, but not worship itself. But this isn't new. The Jews and Samaritans believed that true worship had to take place at a specific location, a specific time. But Jesus, the living expression of the word of God, came close to break open our religious boxes and invite his people to the kind of worship that we were made for. So he's looking for spirit, 
and in truth. Now, what is truth? How do we worship in truth? Worship rooted in the truth of who God is reveals how we honor him. I want to, I want to do a little exercise here. I'm going to try to pick somebody from, from the crowd. Hmm. Jesse. I'm not going to make you stand up. You can stay there. It's cool. That's right. All right, so this is a, uh, a, an illustration of worship that I learned from my friend Meredith Malden. She's a song lab, um, used to be up at Upper Room. She sings to the one. She was with us last year for the conference. Everybody know who I'm talking about? She's amazing. This is her illustration. Credit to you, Mayor. Um, so I'm going to come to uh, Jesse, and I'm going to worship Jesse. Are you ready? Here we go. Hi, Jesse. I worship you. Break my chains. I'm gonna dance a little bit. Do you like it? Good. <laughs> Blow my mind. Make me so happy. <laughs> I'm struggling right now. I need you to fix all my problems right now. I worship you. Thank you. Okay, so that kind of worship right there, did it tell you anything about Jesse? Do you feel like you know him any better? Did it turn your heart towards him, make you think like, oh, I'd like to get to know Jesse? Did none of those things, right? But if I were to look at Jesse and say, you know, Jesse, when you approached me about last year or something like that, and you said that you wanted to do premarital counseling, I really didn't know what to expect, and I sat down with you and your lovely wife, and I heard about your story, and I've seen the, the storms that you've walked through, and I'm honored to know you in my life and see the quality of person you are, that no matter what life threw at you, no matter what heartache or devastation came, you oriented and turned your heart towards the Lord. You overcame tremendous difficulty and bondage to walk in the freedom that you do today. And it's an honor to watch you um, raise your family in the ways of the Lord. Um, you are an amazing man of God. Do you feel like you know anything about him now? Do you, does your heart turn towards him? Yes, that is what worship is supposed to do. It's supposed to reveal who Jesus is and turn our hearts towards him, right? So when we worship in, the, in truth, it's in the truth of who he is and what he's done in our lives. And it's not just ritual. It's not just a hope to kind of get our fix. It's about honoring the Lord, turning our hearts towards him so that the Holy Spirit can reveal who Jesus is to us. And the Spirit, it's worship that unites our spirit with his. That's how we worship in the Spirit. Jesus said, not a matter of the right place, but the right heart. And later, when he was trying to break this all down for Israel's great teacher, Nicodemus, he said, in John, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. So when we're born again of the Spirit through Jesus, his Spirit comes and lives in us. And that Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us who leads us to the Father and who, okay, gosh, I have to read this to you because that's a, that's a great sentence, but man, it's hard. The spirit that reveals Jesus to us also leads us to Jesus and the Father is the Holy Spirit. So this, the Holy Spirit reveals who Jesus is and leads us to the Father. And here's the news. He's an amazing tutor. He's really good at it. 
James 1, 5 through 6 talks about if you long to be wise, you can ask God for wisdom and he'll give it to you. He won't see your lack of wisdom as an opportunity to scold you over your failures, but he'll overwhelm your failures with his grace. So when you go before the Lord and you say, Lord, I want to worship you in spirit and in truth, and I'm not entirely sure what that looks like or means, he is an amazing tutor. He will teach you how to please and minister to the heart of the Lord. But somewhere along the way, this is Jay's soapbox pet peeve, so just bear with me for another second. We stop referring to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit, and we, we begin referring to it as the presence. How many have been guilty of using that phrase before? Not that I'm trying to call you out, but you say, wow, the presence was so strong, or I really felt the presence on that song. I really felt the, the presence on that word. And we start to talk about it. And in our, in our flesh, we start to kind of take that term and make it mean something different than scripture. We use it to gauge what we felt in the service or a way to describe the transformative atmosphere that we just experienced, right? But Holy Spirit does not want to be depersonalized to an effect that we measure. The Holy Spirit isn't a feeling you get. And the strength of, of, of the presence of God is it's not only measured by signs, wonders, miracles, deliverance. All those are things he brings with him. The presence of God isn't a resource you consume to get your needs met. The presence of God is the Holy Spirit. He is an equal third part of this trinity, y'all. Jesus is not just the friendly connect because he was human. He's the express image of the Father. They are all one. So when it comes down to it, I don't want to be a consumer of his presence. I want to be consumed by the Holy Spirit. When we look back at a worship experience we have with the Lord, the question that we need to be asking ourselves is this. It's really simple. Did he come? Did the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, who is the perfect representation of the Father, did he come? So your new metric for worship in spirit and in truth, did the Holy Spirit express himself in the way he wanted to in my life? And was Jesus glorified by my response to this communion with his spirit? That is your only metric right there. Did the Holy Spirit come and do what he wanted to do in me? And did I respond in a way that honored that touch? Number two, this is the activational. So we're talking about worship and the foundations of the Jesus life. This is... Um, this will change your experience in worship, okay? Breaking the measuring stick and choosing the better thing. Okay, I went to ministry school. It's not a secret. Um, and there was one thing that I kind of observed. How many students do I have in the room? You did a, B, a BSSM. You did, um, you did a master's commission. You went to Bible college. Any of those things? Berean counts too, don't worry. I'm kidding. <laughs> the one laughed. Oh, gosh. I love you, Brian. Um, there's a, there is one kind of common trait that I, that I noticed when you're looking at longevity of people, like people you go to class with, and um, as you're progressing in your walk with the Lord, there's one trait that if you rewind and look at all your classmates in that ministry school who are so passionate about the Lord today, there's one common thread between all of them. 
they were the ones who were always sneaking away to the prayer room to be alone with the Lord. They were the ones who, while everybody was playing Frisbee or eating hot dogs or, I don't know, going to see movies. <laughs> that was my school experience. Sorry. <laughs> my wife's laughing at me. It's okay. Um, there, there was a handful who would just disappear to be alone with the presence of God. They're in good company. David, in the valley, while he was looking after the sheep, he wrote the most beautiful psalms that the whole world was still reading and singing about today. Jesus also continued this example by heading off into the wilderness frequently. Now, let me remind you, the word wilderness is eremos, and it has a lot of different definitions to it. It means desert, wilderness, lonely, or quiet place. So Jesus would regularly send his disciples away after ministering so he could pray all night alone, right? Now I have a question for you. Was Jesus praying so that he could be filled with power and be used by God? Was Jesus worshiping and praying all night because he was drained and tired and needed to be revitalized? Jesus went to the Eremos. He went out into the quiet place because that was his end game, not his fuel. Worship is our end game. It can't only be our fuel. We're not coming in just to digest enough of the presence of God to be victorious. We're falling in love with the person of Jesus and he is the reward. He is the center of it all. He is the reason why we worship. Any other reason, any other need met, that's just a part of what he brings into the room, right? So all the healing and the breakthrough and the ways that he ministers to us, all of those things are just a part of what happens when he shows up. So when we worship, we don't need to come before him and say, oh God, please do this, please do that, even though there's so much scripture to back up saying, bring your request before the Lord. What I'm saying is that when you're engaged in vertical worship, true spiritual communion with the Father, he brings with him all of heaven's stuff. It's one of the reasons reasons why in worship where the presence and the glory of God descends and fills the room, the heavy, weighty, kabod glory touches the room that people get healed. It's because it's just what happens in the glory. It says in scripture that you'll, he'll supply all your needs according to his riches in what? In glory, in Christ Jesus. So when we worship and his glory descends, we're not in a posture of saying, Lord, please do this for me. When we're focused on who he is and giving him the worship that he's worthy of, he releases all more of himself into us. And I can't help but wonder if when he releases more of himself into us, all that other illegal stuff that's not happening in heaven just starts to leave. And new levels of kingdom authority get released in your body and in your relationships, in your life. Being with Jesus is the reward. Not just the means to be effective, happy, spiritual, or loved. His pure communion with the Father and worship was the better thing. Jesus liked to go to Mary and Martha's house. All of us know a Martha, right? Martha was really good at hosting events. 
So if you wanted to have a good meal, you wanted to go to Martha's house. You know she made her own croutons. <laughs> she didn't buy them at the Jerusalem market and dump that in there. So she was chopping, the, she was baking them croutons in her stone oven. <laughs> Kneading that dough, I don't know what they did. <laughs> but she, she, she would host these amazing meals and so she's running around. Some of you are Martha's and you identify with that. You're like, that is me, that's what I do. And you look around the house I'm not saying just moms, but maybe a little bit. And you look around the house and you're like, why are you all just sitting there while I'm bustling around making this meal for you? Don't you see I'm working? Can't you get up and uh, shake a leg, as my mom used to say, and help? (laughs) So Martha, she's not like this evil person, okay? She's making a meal for Jesus, the son of God. And Mary's just sitting at his feet. And she comes in and she says, I picture putting your hand on her hip like this. I don't do it really well. Lord, don't you think it's unfair that my sister's left me to do all the work myself? You should tell her to get up and help me. Because I don't know if it was in scripture if the whole time she was kind of like, Mary, Jesus, just, just tell her, get up, help me out here. And Jesus answered her, he said, Martha, My beloved Martha, he's lowering the boom. Why are you upset and troubled and pulled away by all these distractions? Mary's discovered the one thing most important by choosing to sit at my feet. She is undistracted. And I won't take this privilege from her. So moving on to that, undistracted. Is that a word you would use to describe anybody that you know? A couple months ago, right before the conference, I decided to take a little pause from social media, so I didn't delete my accounts. Not really on them much anyways, but I took them off my phone and cleared them because I thought, I just don't want to scroll through reels and waste hours of my life in a real hole. <laughs> so I got rid of it. And do you want to know what I noticed? I noticed that at mealtimes, people don't look at each other anymore. They're on their phone texting, scrolling. I notice that when you're going about your life, you can go to the mall or to a store or something like that, and you'll see parents with their kids holding their hand, facing the phone. You'll see people who gather together to have lunch at Panera, not talking to each other, just staring down at their phones. We're in a new age, aren't we? This, this question, when you ask somebody how they're doing, what's the typical response? I'm doing good. I'm really busy, right? Is this lightning quick lifestyle conducive to a thriving spiritual connection with God? Okay. In the past three years, four years maybe now, some of the most highly viewed shows on Netflix and streaming services, I'll list them for you. I'm not endorsing nor watch these shows. I'm just dropping them out here. Top shows, Lucifer, (laughs) literally the devil's name. (laughs) 13 reasons why. I read the synopsis, a show about suicide, glorifying and romanticizing suicide. Game of Thrones. Let's talk about the 
what I imagine the people were in the days of Noah before the Lord flooded the earth. It's probably this show. There was a a paragraph long about all the reasons why it was rated what it was rated. Do any of these programs reflect godly lifestyles or would they contribute to us seeing God more clearly? I know some, if there's anyone here who likes the show, they'd be like, you don't understand. If you could see past all that and see the blood, it's taste more. <laughs> I'm just saying, hear me out. Right now, according to Nielsen ratings, adults are spending more than 11 hours a day on screens. Teens are spending 10. A typical 18-year-old is going to be exposed to 32,000 hours of media content, and it's increasing by the time they hit 18. And think about the messages in the most popular shows in music today. Do any of those align with a biblical world view. This is, me and Ashley were talking about in the car. Have you noticed that there's a trend right now on TV shows that are romanticizing the people who are in an affair? Right? Those are the heroes now of the plot line, the people who are cheating on their spouse. Because the message isn't about commitment or the the kind of love that's modeled in the Bible that says, I will lay down my life for you. It's kind of this hyped up, romanticized, do what you feel and what you're passionate about. And how dare that wife or that husband hold you back and make you so unhappy. You deserve to be happy. So you should leave that marriage and everyone's rooting and cheering along the way. That is what is being fed into the minds of our teenagers and our young adults who are, are on the cusp but being adults and entering into relationship and marriage. They're looking at a culture that doesn't celebrate marriage, that doesn't celebrate commitment or absolutes. It celebrates doing whatever you want and whatever you feel. And it feels really trendy and it feels really on point. But the truth is, it is that it is a lie that is as old as humanity. That if you want to decide good and evil for yourself, if you want to be do whatever you feel like without consequence, that that is okay. Because the only thing that is hovering over you is some kind of invisible God who's going to bring retribution on you later. They negate the fact that God said that sin is its own punishment as well. That the wages of sin is death. It didn't just say that God pays out that wage and kills people. It's that those behaviors lead to death. So we're looking at a a culture that is being indoctrinated and discipled to believe contrary values to what God, the architect, the designer of humanity said would create life, create goodness in the lives of people who hear it. A report by J. Walter Thompson Group said that 48% of Gen Z identifies as strictly heterosexual. And more than a third of teens today say that they're bisexual. 70% of Gen Z is comfortable with same-sex relationship, and 69% say it's okay to be one gender and feel another. You know, we, we are more distracted than we've ever been. And we've been sold a lie that we are only busy for a season, right? How many of you have been, like, telling that lie to yourself for a while? As long as I get through this next season, I'll be able to calm down my life and be able to get back to those spiritual disciplines and those things that matter, get back to worship as my foundation. But the truth now is kind of settling in that we've been recalibrated over this pandemic and over the past couple of years, there's been a cultural transformation that this is our new norm, right? Perpetually burned out over busy people. And so to hear the voice of God 
To have pure communion with him for worship to naturally flow and for us to sit at his feet requires us to be undistracted. He's not gonna share you with your social media. And if you're reading the Instagram feeds of celebrities more than you're reading the word of God, I gotta tell you, you are distracted. If the foundation of our lives is our connection to culture, based on where we focus our attention, then a lot of us are building our houses on sand. Now, this sand isn't just beautiful beach sand. It's strategically placed white silicone sand laid by corporations with financial stakes in you. Your phone, the media, all that, you're the product, not the app. Romans 12, one through two. Beloved friends, what should be our proper response to God's marvelous mercies? To surrender yourselves to God to be his sacred living sacrifices and live in holiness, experiencing all that delights his heart for this becomes your genuine expression of worship. So stop imitating the ideals and the opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in his eyes. So if we become what we behold, are we building the foundation of our Jesus life on worship and beholding him in such a way that we're becoming like him? Or has the world succeeded and distracted us and we're beholding things that we don't want to become? This is where the measuring stick comes in. I wish I had a giant yardstick, but I was afraid that if I tried to break it, it wouldn't break because they're super flexible but they put them, in front of, put them in front of your face. We've all been conditioned to ask the enough question. Put a measuring stick right in front of your two eyes like this. And am I enough? Am I happy enough? Am I fit enough? Am I successful enough? And we walk around blinded by comparison, not acknowledging that comparison robs you of the joy that comes from knowing that you're fearfully and wonderfully made, that there's nobody like you. This measuring stick blinds you. It, not only will you never be able to appreciate the level of intention joy and love the Father feels when you're just uniquely yourself. But you'll never be able to celebrate anybody else or be free to do what you were made for because you're always comparing and envying. Nothing is ever enough when you live life looking at the measuring stick. And here's my point. When Mary Magdalene came before the Lord and broke open the alabaster box, she poured out everything. She emptied it. And my point is when you come into worship, you're thinking about all the, all the things in your life that need to line up before you can fully engage. Or maybe you're thinking the song isn't my jam. I don't like the volume level. I don't like the lighting. I don't like this. I don't like that. All of those, it's not really enough for me. If you're still measuring, then it's not everything. If you're still measuring in worship, then you're not pouring out everything. I don't think that Mary broke open the box and had a little teaspoon where she was gonna do 36 cleverly placed teaspoons on the foot of Jesus to make sure that he got what he was worthy of. When you break open that vessel, it's never able to be put back together again and everything is poured out. So to be able to give Jesus everything that he deserves and everything that he laid his life down for, to give him that kind of worship requires us to not come in to just give enough. 
We're to just give enough to break into the presence of God and to feel it, but to give everything, every time. That is what worship looks like. And that is how we have foundational worship that you can actually build your life on is when you come before the Lord and say, I won't be measuring. I'm breaking off the stick of comparison that says I'm not enough or this worship is enough and I'm going to pour out everything that I have right now in this moment, independent of how I feel and what's going on in my life or any thoughts I might have because it's never hypocritical to align with truth. So there's no reason that you could bring into the presence of God that would hold you back. Hmm. So let's break the stick this morning, yes? <laughs> Mary discovered the most important thing was sitting at the feet of Jesus. When she broke the box, years of wages, Jesus said that the whole world would talk about this forever because of the love that she did. Can you imagine ministering to Jesus in such a way that he makes sure that the whole world never forgets who you are because of that level of devotion? Because that's what he did with Mary. We're all still talking about it. She must have felt afraid, kind of dumb. All those thoughts probably ran through her head, but in the end, nothing could hold her back from radical worship giving everything. He is worthy, so I will worship. I will worship beyond the 30 minutes on a Sunday. I will worship with my life. I will worship the way, with the way that I treat my kids and how I treat that person who's hard to talk to. We worship by asking the Lord what's important to him. And I'll worship by realizing that any dream I have for myself, anything I wanted to do is empty without him. Ecclesiastes talks about this. It says, everything is meaningless under the sun. It's the most depressing book if you read it with the wrong, <laughs> wrong posture. The beauty of it is that you can have everything the world gives and taste it all, but still not be satisfied because you weren't made for that. That's not the fuel that's gonna satisfy you. It's only Jesus. So if I could get Joe up here on the keys, I think I see him over there. Do you guys just love Joe? I love Joe. Oh. Hmm. Let's talk about the cost of following Jesus. We're gonna close out in just a moment here. Jesus said in Luke 14, 27, that anyone who comes to me must be willing to share my cross and experience it as his own, or he cannot be considered my disciple. So don't follow me without considering what it'll cost you. I want to minister to those who want to throw out the measuring stick and surrender to a lifestyle of worship. So if that's you, all over this room, can you just close your eyes for a moment? I want to talk just, just you and me. Nobody else in the room right now, just you and me. You were made for worship. That's what you were made for. And today, this isn't about admitting some kind of big wrong. This is about something bigger and more beautiful than that. It's about recognizing I was made for worship. I want the foundation of my life, this Jesus life, to be worship. So I have a verse for you. 
I wanna read it over you. And I want you to let these questions hit you and I want you to be honest before you and the Lord right now. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Jesus said, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Holy Spirit's inviting you in to living from and in the secret place, living from pure communion with the Father, living in a constant state of worship. This kind of worship will bring breakthrough. It's a kind of worship that is a radical refusal to make it about anything but Jesus. It is all about Him. He is the reward. He is what we're seeking. Everything you come in before the Lord with this morning, sickness in your body, things that you face, signs, wonders, miracles, all of those are amazing, but they're temporary. Worship is what will continue forever. The eternal foundation of the Jesus life is built on worship and his word. So if you would like to surrender your life to worship again, I want you to stand on your feet. Love it. When I was 12 years old, I was at a youth convention and they wanted us to shout out, I am not ashamed if you're not ashamed of the gospel. I remember being 12 and wanting to do it, but I was too nervous about what people thought about me. I remember when I left the room, I thought to myself, I am never going to leave a meeting like this again without being the first one to stand and the first one to shout it out, if asked. Today, the Lord wants to usher in a new era for you. So if you'd put your hand over your heart, if you'd also wanna give your heart to Jesus today, that's, a, that's the greatest act of worship you can do. You better recognize that Jesus has everything that, in the world. He made it. He spoke it. The one thing that he doesn't have is your heart until you give it to him. So if you wanna give your heart to Jesus, you can agree with this prayer and apply to everything because it's kind of a rededication for all of us. But you can just agree with me and I'm gonna pray over you. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the blood of your son. Lord, I thank you that even in my darkest sin and in the moments where I was separated from you, that you loved me. God, I love you because you first loved me. And so, Father, I surrender my heart. I surrender my life to you, Jesus. And I say, Lord, let my, let my devotion and my connection to you be more than just 
words that I say, but let it be the foundation of my life, God, that I surrender to you, Lord, that I I ask you would forgive me of my sins. And in the middle of this grace-filled moment, Lord, I believe that you're releasing the capacity in me to be a true disciple, to worship, to engage, to experience your presence, Father, to experience the Holy Spirit, and to be able to see God rightly. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus over every heart here, Lord, would you awaken the first love of worship in their life? God, I pray that as they wake up in the morning and when they go to bed at night, the rhythms of how you spoke to them in the season of their first love would be restored. God, that that lamppost would burn brighter in their heart and lives than it ever has before. God, I pray that you would fill them with the knowledge of the Lord. God, that you would fill them with your spirit and that out of that connection, worship that flows like a river of life would extend. And as it flows all around them, it'd be just like it says in Ezekiel, let everything the river touches come to life. In Jesus' name, Bethel Cleveland, I bless you to go out of this place, experiencing the presence of God and knowing who you belong to and that real worship would spring up. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our Sermon of the Week. You can help us reach others by investing today at BethelCleveland.com slash give.